0: And would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. <clears throat> we live in a time in the evangelical world where we hear much about the concept of deconstruction. It was the 20th century French philosopher and atheist Jacques Derrida who originally popularized the concept of deconstructionism. It was the idea that since every worldview was ultimately man-made, every philosophical system needed to be deconstructed. It needed to be taken apart, all of its component parts critically evaluated, its assumptions questioned, and its agendas laid bare for the deconstructionist to retained those components they judged to be worthy, and rejected those components they judge to be faulty or wrongly motivated or uh, just undesirable. And then it was in the late 1900s that another philosophy professor began applying Derrida's ideas to religion. And today, given the popularity and triumph of the pop philosophy of postmodernism, which rejects the existence of truth altogether and embraces subjectivism and relativism and even outright absurdity so that now we we say, well, two plus two might actually equal five, and, and of course that men can be women and so on. Given all of that, it's no surprise that deconstructionism has gone to church as well. Seems like it's every other week that we hear about another celebrity pastor or a musician from a, a once popular Christian band announce that he no longer identifies as evangelical. No, the the power imbalances and the oppression nurtured by the tenets of what we would call biblical Christianity have shown this celebrity that the faith that he grew up in, founded upon the authority of the Scripture, is unfaithful to the way of Jesus. Now, Jesus wouldn't condemn two people who love each other just because they're of the same sex. Jesus wouldn't force a young pregnant woman to carry her child to term if it meant that it would destroy her life. Jesus would have compassion on people who feel trapped in the body of the wrong gender, and and he would affirm their desires to become their authentic self. It's funny or sad how the way of Jesus always seems to look less like what the Bible says about Jesus and more and more like progressive social politics. And so now our former evangelical celebrity announces he's going through a process of deconstructing his faith and determining how he can retain the language of Christianity and some sort of connection to Jesus while also making room for all the social and political opinions that make him popular with unbelievers. What always intrigues me, and I confess irks me, is how often the ex-evangelical crowd desires to keep calling what they believe Christianity. They qualify it with terms like liberal or progressive or affirming, but they seem not to be able to resist putting Christ's name on what is an anti-biblical worldview. On what is ultimately an entirely different religion. And I suppose they do that because they need to trick themselves, at least for a time, into believing that God would, imp- would approve of their deconstruction. But Christianity is defined by definite and specific beliefs, chief among them being the inerrancy and authority of the Bible because you can't claim to follow Jesus while rejecting what He said. And yet, that's what the deconstructionists do. They disown Jesus' Word while seeking to retain Jesus' name. They cast off the authority of the very Scripture that defines Christianity to be what it is, and they embrace an entirely antithetical worldview. That just so happens to get them praised by the world whose attention and approval they so desperately crave, all the while continuing to masquerade themselves as the people of God. Well, something similar, not quite the same, but something similar was happening in Malachi's day. We've said several times now it had been about 80 years since God had made magnificent promises of revolution and restoration to the nation of Israel. Messiah was going to come. The temple was going to be glorious. The land was going to be secure and so filled with people who survived to old age as well as with children playing in the streets. And yet Israel had not seen those promises fulfilled in those 80 years. They were basically a colony of the Persian Empire. Uh, The glory of God had not come to the temple. The priests had let their hearts drop out of the temple service so that worship became nothing more than lifeless externalism. And Yahweh's discipline had even come in His striking their land so that it didn't yield a, a fruitful harvest. And though Israel would pray for relief, Yahweh would not hear them because of their covenant disobedience. The people had seen no such glorious revolution. They didn't see any of God's promises come to pass. And so they came to distrust the faithfulness of God. And in their faithlessness, they had become disillusioned, apathetic, and even insolent. They believed that God had let them down, and so they were only hardened in their disobedience. They they deconstructed their faith. And they began to reason with themselves. You know, it seems like the enemies of God prosper while we, His people, His covenant nations supposedly, languish. And then rather than being honest about their defection from the pure worship of Yahweh according to covenant law and separating themselves from God's nation, they remain within the nation. Continued to call themselves God's people, even to the point that they themselves became the majority in the nation. And they gave voice to their disillusionment, disappointment, and insolent complaining against the character of God for what they believed was his failure to keep his promises to them. And so God has sent the prophet Malachi to rebuke them in a prophetic oracle structured around six disputations. God has come to argue with His people, to engage them in debate, to demonstrate that their accusations against Him are unjustified, that His promises to them have not failed, that His covenant remains sure, and that their disobedience, therefore, must be repented of, or else they would be judged." Now, we've had to be selective in our study of Malachi, aiming to work through these six disputations within four sermons, and that's meant that we haven't been able to uh, cover every verse. We covered the first disputation in our first message in chapter 1, verses 2 through 5, where God proclaims His covenant love for His disillusioned nation. And then in our second message we covered half of the second disputation a scathing diatribe against the empty ritualism of the priests which runs from chapter 1 verse 6 through to chapter 2 verse 9 In last week's message we devoted ourselves to the third and fourth disputations in 210 to 16 We see Yahweh rebuke Israel for betraying their covenant with God and with one another by divorcing their wives and intermarrying with pagans. And then in 2.17 to 3.5, we see God respond to Israel's blasphemous accusations against His justice by prophesying the coming of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will come in the fires of judgment on the day of the Lord to refine those who belong to Yahweh and to consume those who are His enemies. And then, had we time, we might have spent an entire sermon just on Malachi 3.6, truly a, a precious gem of a verse nestled in between the fourth and fifth disputations. It says, "'For I, Yahweh, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed.'" The great declaration of the immutability of God, that He is constant and unchangeable, that with Him there is no variation or shifting shadow, and therefore He is dependable, He is trustworthy, He is a rock for our faith and an anchor for our soul, on account of which those who trust in Him will never be consumed. We could do a whole series on that one verse and its implications. But we are constrained to press on. We also must pass by the fifth disputation that comes in 3, 7 to 12, in which Yahweh accuses Israel of robbing Him by withholding their tithes and offerings. In the wake of their faithless disobedience, verse 11 says that God had sent a devourer to destroy Israel's crops. And the people's response to their straightened economic times was to hold back for themselves their firstfruits, which belonged to God, so that they could ease their financial burdens. And they learned that that is faithlessness. All that they have belongs to Yahweh. He is the giver of all good things. And so to keep what is His for themselves is evidence that they don't trust Him to provide for their needs. If they would only trust Him, even with their meager resources, they would find that He would open the windows of heaven and pour out overflowing blessings upon them. But that brings us to the sixth disputation, our passage for this evening. We come now to the final words of the final prophet in Malachi 3.13 through to six. Follow with me as I read our text. Malachi 3.13. "'Your words have been arrogant against me,' says Yahweh. "'Yet you say, what have we spoken against you?' "'You have said, it is vain to serve God. "'And what profit is it that we have kept his charge "'and that we have walked in mourning before Yahweh of hosts? "'So now we call the arrogant blessed.'" Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. Then those who feared Yahweh spoke to one another, and Yahweh gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear Yahweh and who esteem his name. They will be mine, says Yahweh of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son Who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says Yahweh of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you, "'Who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise "'with healing in its wings, "'and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. "'You will tread down the wicked, "'for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet "'on the day which I am preparing,' says Yahweh of hosts. "'Remember the law of Moses, my servant, "'even the statutes and ordinances "'which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel.' Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of Yahweh. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Israel once again arrogantly calls Yahweh's justice into question. And once again, Yahweh vindicates the glory of his own name by pointing to the great day of justice, to the day of Yahweh, in which Christ will come at the end of the age and separate the righteous from the wicked and render to each one what he is due. And we see this final disputation take shape in three broad movements or three scenes. First, we have the complaint of the treacherous in verses 13 to 15. And then We have the response of the faithful in verse 16, and finally we have the day of distinction in chapter 3, verse 17, through to chapter 4, verse 3. And then those final verses form a fitting conclusion to the book of Malachi and, in some sense, to the Old Testament as a whole. Scene number one, the complaint of the treacherous, the complaint of the treacherous, and again we see it in verses 13 to 15. Your words have been arrogant against me, says Yahweh. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? Verse 14, you've said it is vain to serve God. Here is their charge. It is vain. It is futile. It is worthless to devote ourselves to the worship of Yahweh. Now, where would they have gotten that idea from? Why would they say it's useless to serve God? Well, for two reasons. They argue that the righteous are not rewarded and the wicked are not punished. The righteous are not rewarded. Verse 14, what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before Yahweh of hosts? They're saying, we're obeying God. We've rebuilt the city walls. We've rebuilt the temple. We keep bringing the sacrifices. The temple service is being performed, and yet what have we got? We're a ragtag survivor nation on a strip of land 20 by 25 miles long. We're under the thumb of the Persians who are basically our rulers. The old men are crying when they look at the temple because they they remember Solomon's temple and it doesn't compare. And on top of all of that, the Lord doesn't even bless us with a decent harvest to the point that we're basically in a financial recession. What profit is it that we have kept his charge? What profit is it that we have walked in mourning before Yahweh? We saw it last week in chapter 2, verse 13. They covered the altar of Yahweh with tears, with weeping, and with groaning because He doesn't accept their offerings. And so to walk in mourning referred to particular rites of penitence in which those entreating Yahweh's forgiveness of sin would basically deny themselves the blessings and comforts of life in order to demonstrate their grief over sin. We read throughout the Old Testament of the penitent wearing uncomfortable clothing like sackcloth, pairing that with sitting on ashes, which would basically make them look filthy. They might go without food and fast for a time. Israel's saying, look, we even do all of that. We deprive ourselves of the pleasures of life so that God will see our devotion, and even still, He takes no notice of us. And I can hardly keep up with all the unbiblical theological assumptions that they're operating on here. First, there's their mercenary attitude that God is to be served for profit, that the only reason they're seeking to obey His commandments is because of what they can get out of it. Couple that with their prosperity theology, the belief that if they placate God with duties of worship, He'll somehow be obligated to reward them with material blessing and political power. The false gospel of health, wealth, and prosperity isn't a 20th century invention, it's ancient paganism in Christian dress. One commentator called this underlying assumption in Israel's theology the heathen notion that there is a mechanical and magical connection between religion and prosperity. Then on top of that, there's something of a doctrine of self-atonement that we can feel bad enough or perform enough religious duties and then God will forgive us. And underlying all of that, is the presumption that external ritualism can replace sincere obedience from the heart. They're complaining that the righteous aren't rewarded, but, but they aren't righteous. Remember, these are the treacherous. These are the ones who deal treacherously with one another and profane the covenant of their fathers. They offer the blind and the lame and the sick for sacrifice. They divorce their wives and they marry pagans. And they weep and wail and mourn in a blasphemous effort to bribe God into favoring them as if he were a pagan idol. And we can't linger long, but let a brief word suffice for application. Ask yourselves whether any of these unbiblical assumptions characterize your own conception of God or practices of worship. Do you worship with a mercenary spirit? seeking your own fleshly profit rather than the glory of God above all things? Do you ever believe the lie that faithfulness to God must necessarily result in easier circumstances and the absence of suffering? Are you tempted to practice a sort of evangelical penance where you seek to atone for your sins by religious performance? And do you reduce genuine heart obedience to external formalism? Showing up, sitting when you're supposed to sit, standing when you're supposed to stand, and then checking out for the rest of the week. These are questions of application you can search your hearts on, meditate on some point this week, answer those questions before the Lord. I wish I had time to to dig in further. But not only was Israel saying that it was vain to serve God because the righteous aren't rewarded, they were also saying that it's vain to serve God because the wicked aren't punished. Verse 15, so now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. And that is just so similar to the accusation of 2.17. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of Yahweh, and he delights in them. Where is the God of justice? They're saying, here we are, bending over backwards, trying to keep your covenant, but not really, and we're languishing. While those who don't even pretend to worship you have it easy. The pagans enjoy the finer comforts of life outright wickedness within Israel goes unpunished, and here we are weeping on the altar. What sense does it make to obey if you don't even punish disobedience, God? It sounded a lot like Asaph in Psalm 73. Turn there with me. We mentioned this Psalm last week, but it's worth looking at more in depth. Psalm 73 Asaph says, I came close to stumbling. I almost fell in, and we'll see, to the very trap that the Jews of Malachi's day had fallen in. Verse 3 For I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat which is evidence of their financial abundance. Back then, if you were fat, it meant you had enough money to buy a lot of food and didn't have to work off the calories with manual labor. Verse 5, They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Verse 8, They mock and wickedly speak of oppression, Verse 9, they have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Verse 11, they say, how does God know? And is their knowledge with the Most High? See, they boast about how God pays no attention to their wickedness. Verse 12, behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. And then Asaph, in this fleshly Envious frame of heart comes to the same conclusion as the Jews of Malachi's day. Verse 13, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence for no reason. Emptiness, futile, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. And I think sometimes we can be tempted to have the same attitude. We can be envious of the unbelieving, because sometimes it does seem like things are just easier in the world for those who belong to this world. As followers of Jesus, we have not been promised ease. What have we been promised? John 15, 20, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Matthew 10, 25, if they've called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Philippians 1, 29, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And John 16, 33, in this world, you will have trouble. This world, brothers and sisters, is not our home. Here, says the writer of Hebrews, we have no lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. We are aliens and strangers in a world, the whole of which lies in the power of our enemy, 1 John 5, 19. And even though a life lived in submission to Jesus overflows with blessing, who would say it doesn't? But it only makes sense that a world that is not our home treats us as as if we're pilgrims. And it only makes sense that those who belong to this world often seem to have an easier time than those who don't belong here. And so sometimes we are confronted with this same temptation. Man, I, I live my life by the book. And it seems like those who don't give a rip about the book are enjoying all the success. And so we can be tempted to cut corners, to become lax in our pursuit of holiness, to compromise faithfulness to God's Word. We start thinking about what obedience causes us to miss out on. We're here every Sunday morning, every Sunday evening. Those who don't keep the Lord's Day, maybe they have an extra family day. See all those nice pictures on social media? Sunday family trips. They have an extra vacation day, make it a long weekend. Maybe they just have an extra work day to earn a little bit more money. We are honest in our business dealings, but the other guys aren't concerned about integrity. They're able to get ahead. We keep ourselves sexually pure, And the world just clobbers us with all of these messages about how true fulfillment is found in giving full vent to all of your lusts. And we can be tempted to question, does it really matter that I obey? Does this heaven thing for real? Especially when those who disobey seem to suffer no consequences. That is the complaint of the treacherous, the complaint of the treacherous. What's the response of the faithful? That brings us to the second scene, the response of the faithful. And we see that in verse 16. Then those who feared Yahweh spoke to one another, and Yahweh gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear Yahweh and who esteem his name. We hear of a different group of people that's been spoken about in verses 13 to 15. So apparently within Israel, there were the treacherous who forgot God's law, who disregarded His covenant, who questioned the very goodness of His character, and they seemed to be the majority. But then there was also a minority, a remnant, of those who feared Yahweh, those who worshipped Him in spirit and truth, who revered and esteemed His name, who regarded Him as worthy and weighty and glorious. And the text says they gathered and spoke to one another. Now, it doesn't tell us the words they said, but the result of their conference was such that God announces in verse 17 that they will be His and that he owns them to be his own treasured possession. So on that basis, it would be sound to conclude that this remnant of true believers in Yahweh came together to condemn the complaints of the treacherous and to affirm their faith in God's promises and the trustworthiness of his character and to resolve to walk in faithfulness no matter what the majority would say or do. Now, a number of commentators believe this Book of Remembrance was a covenant renewal ceremony, a document that took place as a covenant renewal ceremony, because a Book of Remembrance was written before Yahweh for these God-fearers. And that could just be a vivid way of picturing God's blessing, God's favor, uh, resting on those who worship Him in truth, that He remembers their faithfulness by setting the record of their deeds perpetually in His presence. But both in Ezra chapter 10 and in Nehemiah chapters 9 and 10, which describe events relatively contemporary with the events of Malachi, both of those portions of Scripture record covenant renewal documents in which those in Israel repented of wickedness, swore faithfulness to Yahweh, and attached their names to a document as a testimony to that fact. So in Ezra 10... One of the men of Israel comes forward in a crowd and openly confesses, verse 2, We have been unfaithful to our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, yet now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. So now let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord, of, the, the, of Ezra, and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law." And then all the assembly gathers together, all but two of the offenders agree to this covenant of repentance. And then in verses 18 to 44, you have the record of all the names of those who had made this covenant confession. And then in Nehemiah chapter 9, Israel assembles wearing sackcloth and dirt, and they stand and confess their sins and Yahweh's righteousness. The exact opposite that the majority are doing in Malachi, Nehemiah 9:33. they confess, however, you are just in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly." And then verse 38 of Nehemiah 9. "Now because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing, a covenant, and on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites and our priests. And the names appear in Nehemiah 10, chapter one, or verses, verses 1 to 26. And then verse 29 says, They are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of Yahweh our Lord. So these are covenant renewal documents. And so it seems likely that mention of a book of remembrance at the same time as such ceremonies are taking place during the virtually contemporaneous ministries of Ezra and Nehemiah, that would indicate that a righteous remnant came forward and renewed their commitment to keep God's law, to keep His covenant. One commentator said, almost surely this was a scroll that contained their names as signatories to some sort of statement of their commitment to Yahweh in faith, that they were disassociating themselves from the prevailing sins, that his promises were reliable, and that his covenant was to be kept. This is how the faithful are to respond when those who profess to be God's people begin deconstructing their faith. When the treacherous complain of God's injustice or faithlessness to his covenant simply because he withholds his blessing as a consequence of their own faithlessness, the faithful respond by examining their own lives, by confessing and repenting of sin, and by renewing their commitment to trust in God's character and walk obediently to his word. The faithful don't seek to compromise with the treacherous. You know, we've got to make sure that they you know, stay in the church, you know, strength in numbers, united we stand, divided we fall. No. When the deconstructionists start abandoning the inerrancy and authority of Scripture in favor of imbibing the world's sexual ethic of fornication, abortion, homosexuality, and transgenderism, the faithful don't negotiate. They don't go to try to find a middle ground in order to placate the treachery of apostates. They double down on faithfulness to God's word. They write a document of fidelity to the truth. They put their names on it and they nail it to the mast. Let it be known. No matter who bows the knee to the culture, we will not bow. You know what God says? He says he remembers that faithfulness. The complaint of the treacherous is that Yahweh has forgotten them. They obey and he doesn't reward them. The wicked disobey, he doesn't punish them. Yahweh doesn't see. He's not concerned. It doesn't matter whether or not we serve God. But God says here that he does remember, that he does see, and he does take notice Hebrews 6.10 puts it perfectly for a context like this. God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name. So that when you can sing from the depths of your heart, when all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. God will not forget the way that you have magnified his name even in the midst of trials and difficulty. He will not forget that in those moments that his people found him to be so trustworthy, so satisfying, that even when wants pinched hard and others fell away, you ran to him and pressed into his word and redoubled your resolve to obey He will not be unjust to forget that because there is a day coming and God's people are to live in light of that day. Whatever the circumstances are today, our eyes are to be fixed on that day. And that brings us to the third scene of this final disputation. We've seen the complaint of the treacherous. We've seen the response of the faithful. And now we come, number three, to the day of distinction. The day of distinction. And this runs from 317 all the way to chapter 4, verse 3. We'll read it again. They will be mine, says Yahweh of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming. "'Burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evil doer will be chaff. "'And the day that is coming will set them ablaze,' says Yahweh of hosts, "'so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. "'But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, "'and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. "'You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day.'" which I am preparing, says Yahweh of hosts. So unbelieving Israel's complaint is that it makes no difference whether or not they serve God. The righteous aren't rewarded, the wicked aren't punished. God makes no distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous, between the faithful and those who betray the covenant. So what's the point of trying to be righteous? God says there is a day coming when you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. Though the wheat and the tares grow together at the present time, and though the tares are not uprooted immediately, oh, the day of winnowing is coming. And on that day, no one will have any questions about who the righteous are and who the wicked are. The tares will be gathered together and burned up while the wheat will be gathered together into Yahweh's storehouses for his own possession. And the very first psalm draws that very distinction between the righteous and the wicked that Israel had forgotten. The one who repudiates the counsel of the wicked, the path of sinners and the seed of scoffers, but delights in the law of Yahweh, will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, yielding fruit in season, never withering, always prospering. But, verse 4, the wicked are not so, but they are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous, for Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There will be a distinction. And on that day, the very ones who the faithless nation calls blessed, who says, escape, those will be chaff in the furnace of omnipotent vengeance. They will be set ablaze with the result that neither root nor branch will be left all will be totally consumed in the fires of divine judgment everlasting bitterness shame punishment everlasting torment say mike what are you saying you can't say that nowadays we don't we don't. that's fire and brimstone stuff that's some old time fundamentalist Chapel stuff. No, 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 friend. That is the Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God. I'm not a fire and brimstone preacher. The Holy Spirit is a fire and brimstone preacher. That judgment is as sure as your next breath, surer than your next breath. And Yahweh's holiness certifies it and makes it so. Sin is so heinous. He is so glorious, so holy that the only proper response of perfect justice to unforgiven, unpaid-for sin is everlasting torment. But what of the righteous? This passage characterizes their blessing with five designations. First, they will be spared, verse 17. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son, who serves him god will be compassionate and merciful to his people forgiving their sins and sparing them from the terrible judgment that they deserve and this is such a glorious picture it doesn't say and i will reward them in accordance with their merits no we still have to be spared because we still deserve wrath And so the claim of God's people is not our own righteousness, not we have the good sense to follow and obey. We didn't have that good sense. We all, we like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The righteousness that we plead on that day is the righteousness that is counted to be ours through the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ so that having been accepted by God for the sake of Christ's perfect obedience, our imperfect obedience will be received for Jesus' sake. It's as if we offer the lame and the sick and the blind, and Christ comes along and says, here's my perfect sacrifice, here's the aroma of my flesh crushed under the weight of divine wrath, and that will be a sweet-smelling scent to God. He'll be pleased by it. So that even our obedience needs atonement. Even our faithfulness needs the faithful, the perfect faithfulness of Christ to come and sweeten the offering. Calvin says, For though our works be sprinkled with many spots, they will yet be acceptable to him. And though we labor under many defects, we shall yet be approved by him. How so? Because he will spare us. For a father is indulgent to his children. And though he may see a blemish in the body of his son, he will not yet cast him out of his house. If there's an imperfection on you, God, your father, won't say, get out of here. All I can, all I can tolerate is perfect holiness. Because he is tolerating perfect holiness as to your position because of Christ, and so he can tolerate imperfection in your obedience. Much in the same way you tell your, your kid to clean up his room, and you want it spotless, and nothing should be left on the floor, and you walk in there, and two or three toys are back in their place, or a few pieces of clothing are picked up and put in the hamper, but it's still a mess. You're indulgent. You say, I, I see, you made it. I see you've, you've put that toy away. I see you've picked up those clothes good job, son. You don't say, hey, this is still on the floor. You sleep in the backyard. The father spares his children. Second, and related to that, the righteous will be justified. Chapter four, verse two, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Just as the rays of the sun bring light and warmth over all the earth for the health and growth of every living thing, so also will righteousness shine like the sun in the fullness of its strength and, as one commentator said, bring the healing of all hurts and wounds which the power of darkness has inflicted upon the righteous. And that healing stems from the imputation of a righteousness not our own, one for us, by the Son of God himself, by Christ our great substitute and champion. In his days, Jeremiah 23, 6, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is his name by which he will be called. What's his name? Yahweh, our righteousness. Jesus is the Lord, Yahweh, our righteousness. Third, the righteous will be beatified. Beatified, and by that I just mean made truly and perfectly blessed, filled to overflowing with joy. Look at the second half of verse two. And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. It's a picture of unqualified, exuberant joy. The same term is used in Jeremiah 50, verse 11, alongside terms like glad and jubilant. And here, in the world in which you are strangers and exiles, pilgrims in a land that lies in the power of the evil one, with no place to truly call your own, here you mourn and you weep and you battle the temptation to envy the wicked. But in that day... You will be in the presence of the one in whose presence is fullness of joy in whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. And the reason for your fullness of joy is because you'll be, number four, treasured, spared, justified, beatified, treasured. Back to chapter 3, verse 17, and see if you can take this in and keep your heart from bursting as you read this. Chapter 3, verse 17, God says, they will be mine, says Yahweh of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession. God has said this of Israel from the beginning, Deuteronomy 7, 6, Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Deuteronomy 26, 18 and 19 says, Yahweh has declared today you to be his people a treasured possession. And that is precisely what Paul says to Titus about Christ and his church. Titus 2.14, He gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Can you think of that? We who ought to be disowned as the offscouring of the world, now the treasured possession of the God of all holiness and beauty and righteousness. We who were no people, truly orphans of righteousness, children of none but our father, the devil, now called sons of the living God. Oh, to be the treasured possession of the God of all loveliness. And then to envy the wicked. That is just madness. That's what Malachi is telling Israel. You will skip like calves from the stall because you'll be God's own possession and he will rejoice over you. We heard in Zephaniah chapter 3. and you envy them? Are you kidding me? And then finally, the righteous will be triumphant. Chapter 4, verse 3, you will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing. The very ones you now envy will be trampled under your feet on the day of judgment. Not that the righteous will destroy the wicked, Christ will destroy the wicked. But once Christ has struck them down, the righteous will triumph over them as those who have been spared, justified, beatified, and are treasured. And so, if we turn back to Psalm 73 and look at the second half of this psalm, we see the remedy for Asaph's envy of the wicked. Psalm 73, verse 16. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Church is essential. I came into the presence of God with the righteous, with the faithful. I came to worship, and then what was my, what was my foolish fleshly evaluation and envy of the wicked, I began to see see clearly. Then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused you will despise their form. See, the remedy for the believer's envy of the wicked is to look at the present with the eye of eternity. It is to perceive their end and to perceive our end and to recognize that Though it seems that God blesses the arrogant and allows the evildoers to escape, while the servants of God languish in vain, the day of distinction is coming when all will be put to rights. You see, friends, when the unrighteous within the visible church lose faith in the goodness and justice of God, when they envy the wicked so much that they betray God's word, by deconstructing their faith in an effort to remain relevant or acceptable to the world, it belongs to us who would quit ourselves faithful to rebuke those on the path of apostasy and to reaffirm and our trust in and loyalty to Christ and the Scripture. You will be ostracized. You will Your way will be toilsome and wearying. But you remember that you are pilgrims, that this world is not your home, that here, like your Savior, you have no place to lay your head down in ease. But you're seeking a better country, a city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Look ahead to the judgment, to that great day of distinction and sing, This is my Father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. And as ruler, God will bring down such condemnation upon the wicked. Such condemnation that it should banish every trace of envy from your heart. And if that wasn't enough, then consider what that same day of judgment will be for those who trust in Christ and in his word. As Peter says, fix your hope completely on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And comfort yourselves with that great word of consolation from the Puritan Thomas Brooks. Your life is short. Your duties are Many, your assistance great, and your reward sure. Therefore, faint not, hold on and hold up in ways of well doing, and heaven shall make amends for all. Now, that would be a good place to end, wouldn't it? But there's three more verses as a sort of coda to this great prophecy and even to the Old Testament itself, Malachi tells the people, he tells God's people, remember the law and look for the gospel. Verse four, remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet, Before the coming of the great and terrible day of Yahweh, he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children of their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And we could have a whole sermon on those three verses. But quickly, remember the law, he says to them. Be faithful to the covenant. Give heed to God's word. And then look for the prophet who will preach the gospel. There's so much here, The Moses sort of representative is the law, Elijah representative is the prophets, look for the law and the prophets, and here comes the one eventually who says, I'm not coming to annul any of the commandments, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. We've got Moses here and Elijah, and then who appears on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus in Matthew 17, but Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets testifying that Jesus Christ is the one of whom Malachi spoke. Malachi is telling them before long, the prophet Elijah would come and prepare the way for Messiah. Messiah. And we learn in the New Testament that John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. Luke 1, 15 to 17. Quotes this very passage in Malachi to say that this was John. Jesus himself said in Matthew eleven fourteen, John himself is Elijah who was to come. And John preached that baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and he prepared the way for Jesus, who accomplished that very good news that we preach, that though you are no less wicked than the treacherous Jews of Malachi's day, that you are as freely welcomed to this glorious Messiah as they were. Friend, if you're here and you're outside of Christ, if you are a stranger to the grace of Jesus, If you are an enemy to the God of righteousness, remember the law. Remember that great and awful standard of statutes and commandments that God gave to Moses at Horeb at Mount Sinai when the mountain thundered and quaked and everybody was terrified and they say, Moses, don't let God speak to us anymore. You speak to us, but don't let God speak to us. This is too terrible for us. If you're outside of Christ, friend, that law quakes as terribly for you as it did for them on that day. And his judgment is so certain. It is so held over your heads by by the hand of a God you have sworn to be an enemy to that you would be nothing but foolish, perfectly foolish to sit here and listen to the gospel preached and to hug death to your breast. Remember the law, it condemns you. You can't obey. You can't fulfill its demands. It, it absolutely levels you to the ground before the holiness of God. And what does it do? It chases you to the next command. Look for the gospel. Look to the prophet who proclaims the gospel. Look to the, to the John the Baptist, to the, to the Elijah who proclaimed the coming of Messiah Jesus, who accomplished perfect righteousness. Who lived the life of perfect obedience that every one of us has failed to live? Who earned the righteousness, who earned the approval of his Father through his perfect law keeping? And now, and then, well, and then bore the wrath of God, the punishment of God, in the place of guilty sinners, and who rose again on the third day in victory over sin and death, promising that anybody who turns from their sins who simply acknowledges that they are guilty before this holy God, have no hope of self-atonement, but puts all their trust and all their hope and all their confidence on the shoulders of that perfect man, risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, and seated at the right hand of God, that he will welcome them and spare them as sons and cover them in his righteousness, so that on the day of judgment you see nothing but the sun of righteousness rising with healing in its wings. Come to Christ. Repent and believe the gospel and be saved. That's the message of Malachi. That's the message of the minor prophets. That's the message of the Old Testament. That is the message of the entire 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. Repent and find life in Christ through faith alone. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would accomplish that very thing in our midst this, this moment, and that you would send the Spirit of God to blow where he wishes, that he would blow upon the hearts of those who are here this evening, still strangers to your grace. I pray that you would buckle the knee of the most stubborn and obstinate one here, that you would bow the heart in humble wonder of a, a Savior so glorious as to to leave the abode of righteousness and glory and to suffer the fate of of a man, of a disobedient man, though he himself was perfectly righteous, to bear the wrath that you burn rightly against all the wicked, so that those who trust in him alone might find life, be forgiven, be clothed with righteousness. We pray, Father, in the midst of great apostasy and in a great falling away, as those who name the name of Christ uh, shrink back unto destruction and flatter themselves with fancy terms like deconstruction and the like. We pray that we would remain faithful, that though all should compromise that we will not, that though we be alone, and praise God, we are not alone, but though, if it should come to that, that we will still follow you. Not because we have strong willpower, but because you just are that glorious, because you compel worship and devotion by your own beauty, and you make us glad to suffer if we must, so that we might put that glory on display. Fill us with your spirit. Fill, Grace Church, with that spirit of boldness, of resolve. May it start in our own hearts first, and we go to war with our own sin before we take to the streets to battle the sins of the world. May you get what you're worthy of in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.